I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Beth Fisher Yoshida. Uh, She's author of New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. Negotiation isn't easy, and for countless women, it expo- it's, it's exponentially harder. If you come across as fired up and assertive, you'll face backlash from people who uh, label you as unlikable, unhirable, uh, intimidating, or even bossy. If you're amenable or meek, the negotiation falls apart. It's no wonder that 60% of women haven't negotiated issues like workplace pay, Though the world around us is rapidly changing, the antiquated stories about how women should be have not. By dumping this cultural baggage and writing a new story, women will strengthen their resolve in negotiation acumen and get fast results. Pulling from 30-plus years of negotiation research and practice, Beth Fisher Yoshida, a negotiation consultant for the United Nations, offers no-nonsense negotiation strategies for women of all ages. She's a global expert and educator in intercultural negotiation and communication, as well as the program director of Columbia University's Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution. Welcome to the show, Beth. Nice to have you on today. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's start with this. So how do we how do we become aware of the our cultural baggage, i.e. the stories that we carry and sort of uh, as individuals, women, unearth these stories? Where do they come from and how do they affect our negotiations? I guess first we have to understand them. Right. Well, great question. Thank you for that. So the underlying premise of all of this is self-awareness and it is a lifetime skill development. It doesn't happen just in one day because you're never in exactly the same situation twice with the same person negotiating the same issue. There's always some difference, right? So you have to develop self-awareness. And then in the book, I do talk about different kinds of tools, but there's not the only tools in the world. There are many ways of discovering self. And the more you get to understand who you are in relationship with other people, and you also get to understand why you react the way you do, why you don't react the way you do. You know, some people you just resonate with, some you don't. So what I do go through in the book are different kind of like narrative timelines, I call it. And so it really is, for example, you mentioned the social worlds we're in. If you think about the different kind of messaging you receive from your families, from when you were young all the way until now, your education, your community, your religious institutions, all of those different places have a responsibility to socialize us into the world. And so they give us the messages about who we're supposed to be as young girls and women in the world. So those are the stories that we carry with us, and sometimes they work for us, and sometimes they hold us back. So we have to be aware of which ones hold us back and which ones uh, help us to go forward. And what you're saying is, I guess, is that all of this, our upbringing, our cultural background, our families impact every negotiation in any situation. So it's always there no matter who we're negotiating with, whether it's at work or within our families or uh, different situations at work or even international negotiations. The The emotional stuff comes from the same place. Yeah. So yeah, all of it is present. And then what happens though is depending on who you're negotiating with and what the issues are in the context, how you're feeling that day, different stories will become more prominent. So, for example, if you have 
issues about not being smart enough when you're in the workplace of super smart people, then that story about maybe not being smart enough will become prominent. Whereas if you're negotiating with a friend, that story may not be as relevant. Other stories may become more relevant. So all the stories are there. It's just that some of them become more prominent than others, depending on the situation. Let's take the work situation. You know, somehow on some level, you know, you're the smartest person in the room and maybe you're only you're the only woman at the negotiating table and you're smarter than the rest of these guys. But somehow, even knowing that you you're in that situation and you can't let go of that, maybe I really don't know what I'm talking about. So what do you do? Yeah. So when I was doing my research, I divided women into different groups depending on how much work experience they have. So if they are junior in their career, and which may maybe under five years or so, or mid-career, like 10 to 15 years, or senior in their careers, 25 plus, different stories will come up. So if somebody who's already been in the world of business for 25 years or more, that's probably not going to be as relevant to them, right? Because they're going to realize, I may have thought that when I was younger, but you know what? I know who I am. I've been around. I've been successful to whatever degree. And so I know that's not the story. Probably that would affect junior people more because they're thinking, well, maybe I don't have enough experience. And so even though I might be book smart, I may not be smart in the ways of the organization or the ways to present myself. And so other stories get in the way even if I am the most, the smartest or the most competent in the room. Well, how about the, what I read in the beginning in the intro, uh, if this statistic is correct, it's no wonder that 60% of women haven't negotiated issues like workplace pay. That seems to me pretty Mm -hmm. basic. And we're still at that point in 2023. Um, What are we Let's. Uh, what are we doing wrong? I mean, what I mean, we're, we're describing it, and you talking about what you do and how you, uh, uh, would, uh, when you're doing coaching and stuff. But why sixty percent? Where is that? You know, yeah. I'm a baby boomer. I mean, we're talking about millennials, Gen X. I mean, there are many generations. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who? Um, yeah. So, what's happening with them? Yeah, there could be like five generations in the workplace at the same time these days. And so I think what's happening is, you know, it's not flat across the board where everybody falls into that category, right? So part of the messaging is getting better. So we are getting better at telling younger women, you need to get out there and assert yourself and all of that. However, even if you want to do that, it doesn't mean that the rest of the organization or the people you're negotiating with are receptive to that. So you still might get some pushback. The other thing about salaries, so I mean, a long time ago, and it still happens in some cases where some women say, I didn't know I could negotiate that. I didn't know I could ask, right? That's an older story, but still relevant in some places today. And then when I think about compensation, you know, a lot of people ask me to do some workshops or training on salary negotiation. And one of the biggest things I take away from that is if we're only thinking about a number or an amount of money we want to get, then that's really very narrow in our scope. So if you say, okay, I want X amount of dollars, and then the person says, sorry, it's not in the budget, now what do you do, right? So if you think about compensation, being compensated for your work in a variety of ways, so a lot of people want to have opportunities for professional development, or they want to have opportunities for traveling or flex time or working virtually, right? So 
there are different things to negotiate, which is not only about the dollar amount. So this is where you have to do your preparation beforehand to know what's really important for me. What are my values? What is negotiable for me? I'm willing to give up certain things and gain other things. And what is absolutely non-negotiable? So it's not even a starter. You have to know that in advance so that you can expand the conversation so that you walk away with a package that's more suitable, not just a number on a salary. Given that, and you've done so much research, and in all your research, what's the difference in the statistic for men? How many men don't negotiate, is it six, I'm assuming it's not 60% of men don't negotiate uh, their workplace pay, as you have described it, depending on what they want and what they're negotiating for. What are the, what is the comparison? What are, do you, what are the statistics? Yeah, I don't know all the statistics for men, but I do know that whatever it is for women, it's way higher for men. And part of that is because of the acculturation process. So men are just said, you know, get out there and ask for what you want. And that's it. So it's like they don't even think twice about not asking for it. And so I know that um, I was talking to some young women recently, and I'm going to be doing a workshop with them in a little while. And they were talking about how they were probably in their mid to late 20s, and they were noticing that the men in their group of friends were way more knowledgeable about finance, cryptocurrencies, and all of that than the younger women were. And so that's just something that's happening right now with younger people, too. And what is that about? Not sure, right? But part of the process of how we are developed and how we grow up, we get different kinds of messaging. Now, I'm sure men have their own sets of issues, but it's not the same as women, you know. So, for example, I mean, men are taught from way early, you know, men don't cry in a lot of cultures. So men have a much harder time showing emotions. And that's why also I think that men become more uncomfortable when women show emotions, especially in the negotiation setting. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to process. Now, of course, I'm talking in generalizations. Of course, there are some men who are sensitive, do express their emotions, and women who do research for what they want. But the vast majority are in the categories that we've been talking about. So emotions, they can be positive or negative. I mean, women get more emotional in their negotiations. That can be negative, but it also right. can be positive because it puts men off and they really don't know how to handle it. So that gives, a, gives women kind of a, a one-up. It could, but on the other hand, you know, when people are uncomfortable in situations, they react in different ways. So... A person could just shut down the conversation, just shut the negotiation down, you know, to say, okay, we can't talk about this now or something, or, you know, even say you're out of control or you're not in control or when you calm down, you know, things like that, which could sound a little bit condescending, but because they're so uncomfortable with it that they don't even want to be in the space with it at all, you know, that, so that could happen. So just the expression of emotions alone, whether they're positive or negative, could have a negative impact on somebody if they're not ready to handle that emotional trigger or that emotional response. Let's talk about uncomfortable situations because that's what you talk about in the book, how to negotiate in uncomfortable situations and, as you describe it, challenging environments. Yeah, so I think part of the impetus for that chapter, I think you're talking about the negotiating compromising situations, mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, the whole Me Too movement came out while I was writing the book, and I thought, you know, I can't not pay attention to that. 
so it's really a very tricky situation because uh, I never w- want to encourage anybody to stay in a situation where they don't feel safe, and that's where you draw the line. If I'm not safe psychologically, emotionally, physically, then I need to leave that situation. But if you are safe but it's still uncomfortable, then I think there's you know ways of negotiating that and also setting what your own boundaries are about what you're willing to put up with or not. And this is something that we've seen coming out a lot when women say, I put up with this for so long, whatever this is, and uh, I'm not going to do it anymore. The challenge also is that if you excuse yourself from certain situations, that means you're excusing yourself from networking opportunities because a lot of informal negotiations take place out of the workplace. Let's say you're in a bar or you're on a golf course, wherever you are. And then when it comes back into the office, a lot of it's already been decided or the relationships have already been built and you haven't been a part of it. So you really need to think about where am I going to go and how am I going to network with other people to get opportunities or how am I going to demonstrate that I'm qualified for an advancement, for a promotion, for a career shift if I'm not in those kinds of social situations because they're not comfortable for me. So that's where a lot of the challenge is for women, but it's not impossible. So then you have to think about, okay, how do I find allies to help me? How do I find mentors that can help pave the way for me? So there are ways of thinking about how to get assistance to help you have a stronger place in that kind of a negotiation, even if you're not directly negotiating with a person because of discomfort. It, well, is it possible for women to get into those, Not they're not, as you say, it's not necessarily in the workplace, uh, the informal environments where decisions are made? I mean, on the golf course, you're not playing golf, you're not going to the bar with the guys, whatever. So how, because that's really, I think that's traditionally been very key as, you, as you're describing it in terms of uh, men um, negotiating outside the workplace and had as you say, having been already decided by the time they get into the meeting. So what do do they, what do women do? Form their own alliances, their own groups? I, I heard you say mentors, et cetera, but where do you actually go and do it? <laughs> right. So, yes. So, I mean, like I said, so you can have an ally, which means you can have a male ally there who can advocate for you or pave the way for you or have you invited into certain situations. You know, it's, Still, um, you know, like the boys club, the old boys club in some situations. I know a lot of organizations are becoming much more conscious of that and not doing that as much. So in the off hours, there is more mixed gender in the activities that take place. But, you know, there's still a lot that goes on where there's just a camaraderie. So women can have an alliance. There are a lot of uh, organizations that have their own women's support groups or affinity groups. There are professional organizations that women can join, and all of that really helps strengthen women in their network and in their situation in the workplace. So some of it is your own gender, and some of it is cross-gender with an ally or mentor that can help pave the way. Now I'd like to switch. We've been talking about the workplace, and I want to switch to Chapter 5 in your book, Negotiating in Our Families, Families as as Systems, Mm -hmm. because as a social worker, obviously, I'm interested in that. And that can be some of the most difficult negotiations, as you describe in that chapter. Uh, And everybody has some family, uh, whatever the family system is, and has to do some negotiation. So um, let's let's talk about negotiating in our families and how difficult it, because you're definitely emotionally involved one way or the other, maybe... Uh, much more so than say that you are at work, right? 
Well, yes, because, you know, we have these definitions of what it means to be professional, and being professional in the workplace usually doesn't uh, have an expression of emotion, so we hold that back. So at home, where we tend to be a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more comfortable in general, again, talking in generalizations, then we express ourselves and not necessarily tactfully, right? So we may have an emotional response to something without really thinking about it, and then afterwards we might say, oh, I shouldn't have said this, or I should have done that instead, something like that. So because we have that emotional attachment, we also have definitions about what we think it means to be in a relationship. So, for example, if, you know, we're a mother, we think we have a certain idea about what a mother should be, what a mother should do, and how others in the family structure or system should react or interact with mothers. But it may not always be the same, and not all of our children or our uh, brothers and sisters or our spouse or significant others has the same definition. And if we are a woman who's a mother and also working outside the home, and I say it that way because every woman works in the home for sure, if you're working outside the home, then it's a challenge to feel that you are completely showing up in any one place. You know, like people used to ask me, and I kid around, they say, like, well, how do you do it all? And I say, well, not well, because I'm thinking on one day, I may not feel I'm fully present for my family. On another day, I might feel I'm not fully present in the workplace either. So there are those kinds of challenges that happen as well. What about families, and and I've experienced this, and actually with friends and colleagues and and, uh, uh, families that I've seen, I mean, a lot has to do with, especially as a baby boomer, you have siblings negotiating their uh, parents' elderly parents, if they're sick, where they're going to be taken care of, their money situations it seems to be coming up a lot, uh, particularly mm-hmm. as people live longer. Uh, how do you, those seem to be very difficult negotiations because they come from different, you know, siblings usually come from different family situations themselves, but it's, it's an issue that I think is, 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 um, is out there and obviously important to address. So how do you do that or what do you do? Yeah, I did go through some of that in the book, too. So, you know, when you're at that stage where you have parents who are elderly, and if you do have children and you're also in a career, I mean, that's a really tough place to be. It's almost like a middle manager in an organization. You're in the middle there because you have so many different pulls and demands on you at the same time. I think part of the challenge in negotiating with siblings about parents, and of course, parents might be in the conversation, but it depends on their health, whether they're in the conversation or not. But the, you have old stories about who you are in relation to your sibling that probably haven't matured with time, even though you have, right? So you have a certain dynamic with a sibling from when you're 8 or 10 years old that just remains the dominant story about who you are in relation. So one of the examples I use in the book is where uh, there's a sister who's the oldest sister, has a younger brother, so she always took on more of the responsibility and felt like the younger brother was the younger brother, the kid brother, right? So didn't she didn't fully recognize his maturity and his capability of being able to handle the responsibility with her because she always did that. And then he may feel stifled by her because she didn't give him that recognition or that maybe he, he said he wanted the responsibility but didn't really take actions or take steps to show that he could handle it. So those are old stories that need to be explored because they're getting in the way of what's happening in today's world, in today's life between them and who they are in relation to the parents as well. 
And sometimes, you know, there are parents who defer to one sibling over another because they think that sibling is more responsible than the other person. So they feed into that story as well, and those stories perpetuate. One other example is I always, you know, kid around with my students and people in workshops, and I say, you know, here you are as mature, you're learning all these skills, you've grown up so much, and then you go home for family holiday dinner, and people go, oh, you know, because then they realize even though I might be 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever age I am, I go back and it's those same old family dynamics of when I was 10 years old. And so if I drop a piece of food, they might say, oh, yes, you always were a sloppy eater, even though 30 or 40 years later, of course, I know how to eat. I don't drop the food. But those stories get perpetuated, and it's really hard to live them down because that means you're asking everybody else around you to change their story about who you are And that's a big ask sometimes for some people. And aren't we talking about boundaries? Yes. I mean, I think most people could identify with that story. You sit down at the Thanksgiving table and you're 10 years old again, even if you're 55. uh, And (laughs) uh, and it's painful. So uh, let's take those kinds of examples. Boundaries, because you mentioned boundaries earlier. Uh, Mm -hmm. What kind of – there are boundaries that one needs to, I assume – establish with families, whether you're dealing with, as you say, you could be older parents, children, the whole gamut, work. How do you establish those boundaries? What do you do? You'll only go so far. I'm going to walk away from the table. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave the Thanksgiving dinner. Let's make it, you know, I'm not staying here anymore. Is that what you do? Well, that's pretty extreme. Yes. I hope you have (laughs) some other steps before you get there. So again, it goes back to self-awareness. And it goes back to understanding what's really important to you, what's negotiable and non-negotiable. So somebody is going to be uncomfortable, right? Either you're going to be uncomfortable that somebody's making a comment that you're not happy with, somebody's going to express a political view that you're not happy with, or something like that. And then there's also, if you say something, you might make the other person feel uncomfortable or embarrassed that they said something. So there has to be tact involved, right? So... You may say to yourself, I am not going to put up with certain kinds of comments or certain kinds of criticisms because I don't like it and that's not who I am. So you have to figure out if this is going to happen, what am I going to say, how am I going to say it, and in what situation. So I probably would not say it to somebody in front of a whole group of people because that would embarrass them and put them on the spot and then they'll have a certain kind of reaction. I might want to take the person on the side and say something like, you know, when you make comments like whatever it is, it makes me feel really uncomfortable because I don't identify with that anymore. That's not who I am. So I'd appreciate you modifying your story about me because, you know, I've grown up or something to that effect. So you have to think about How am I going to say something in a way that's constructive? Because you want to move forward. It's not that you're ending your family relationships, right? You want to continue the relationship only if they are improved and only if they're better. And so I would say not to avoid it, but to really constructively think about it. Unfortunately, many people feel uncomfortable saying something like that. So they either put up with it and they fume about it or they try to avoid those people and the other people don't really understand why you're avoiding them because you haven't had that conversation. But it takes a, a certain determination and skill set to be able to do that. I was going to say, and it takes, and another word that we've been talking about, awareness. You really have to, one needs to be yeah. aware and maybe and be prepared as I'm listening to you. Don't go into the situation mm-hmm. not being aware or not being prepared. If something, you know, you, you can, 
you have an idea or an expectation of how you fit into that family and uh, you have a pretty good idea of what's going, you know, the conversation. So if you're prepared and aware, you'll be better off so you don't have to get up and leave the table, <laughs> whatever. The, right. Right. Uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So in I just what we only have a few minutes left, but I was just um, in the coaching that you do. Uh, and you coach women of all ages. Any big differences in women of, well, I kind of touched on that with the generations, but uh, differences you see in negotiating skills in a younger generation as opposed to the older generation or the five generations that exist? Yeah, so it's more about not necessarily dividing by generation, but more about we think we're doing something that we're not. So, for example, we may think we're communicating well. We may think we're communicating what we really want or need, but in actuality, we may not be. So there's still an amount of guessing that happens. So when people, you know, say, yes, I know, and they just think they know, that's one level of knowing. But then I ask people to actually act it out or to role play. If I want to hear the actual words that they're saying, I want to see the tone of voice. I want to see all of it happening. And then I would react in different ways in the role play so that this way they'd get a chance to see there might be multiple reactions and then what do they do. So I think the difference between thinking you know what you're doing and actually practicing doing it, that's where there's sometimes a gap. And that's where there's an amount of uh, room for improvement and opportunity because when you get that kind of feedback, then you're able to better shape your communication in the actual negotiation. Yeah, role playing is a very powerful tool. A uh, couple mm-hmm. minutes left. So, uh, new story, new power: A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. Author Beth Beth Fisher Yoshida. Beth, give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about your work and the book. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's my personal website, which is bethfisheryoshida.com, and there's lots of updated information there uh, where I'm speaking and so on. You can follow me on social media. I'm particularly active on LinkedIn and Instagram with my name. And also, since at Columbia University, the Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution program website has a lots of information there, too. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of really good information. You, we appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 